When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grill and JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Conrad. Good, good, good. Glad to be alive, folks. Thanks for tuning in. I'm having computer issues. And it, it, uh, in, my, in my demo, many of us are not extremely competent in identifying our, uh, our issues with IT, technical issues. So I'm a little bit pissed off right now. And so I hope that we have to restart the show a half a dozen times because Conrad can only carry me so far folks, for God's <laughs> sakes. Oh man. Listen, I'm excited. We're here. We're covering one of my favorite pay-per-views. Uh, I love 1996 and this was such a good show in your house. 10 mind games is what we're talking about. And I can't believe it that, uh, it's been this long, but it's been like 23 years coming up this next week. How nuts is that? This feels like it was like 10 years ago. That's uh, like I say, things change. This whole thing, this whole digital thing changes. All that. Not, Connor, even I got a YouTube channel now. I mean, you didn't even know that. I didn't know it till a couple, not long ago. <laughs> Absolutely. I know that a lot of our uh, listeners have discovered our show just through, through finding clips on YouTube. And we have an official YouTube channel. Tell them about it, JR. Well, jrsvideos.com, baby. That's where you can find a lot of good stuff. And it's, it's growing exponentially. And, uh, we think that, uh, we're going to have some fun with it. So, and looking to do more content, you know, and somewhere down the road, somebody's going to be really smart and, and they, or we are in a collaborative effort are going to work together to, uh, create a video arm of this operation so that we can come to the fans once a month or, or something on some sort of uh, video feed. And, uh, you know, we should be able to figure that out, Conrad, you know, uh, you know, I could always come to Alabama and eat barbecue and and get drunk and talk. Well, I'm not opposed to that. I'll tell you, this is, uh, going to be a fun time though. We, uh, we've enjoyed doing the podcast and the idea of us maybe finding a way to introduce a video element feels like the next phase of what we're trying to do. We appreciate you guys being on the journey with us. If you haven't throw us a follow it's at Jr. grilling on Twitter. And uh, you're going to ask questions, see what the upcoming shows are, find out about some new merch because we do have some new shirts coming your way. And you'll see all of that on Twitter at Jr. Grilling, and of course, I am at Hey Hey. It's Conrad. Everybody knows Jim Ross. Jim, you got like 1.7 million Twitter followers. Yeah, a lot of folks have too much free time, Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I appreciate them too. I don't have a, a surrogate doing my uh, social media. My friend Sean Creedle in Baltimore does a lot of work with Dan McDivitt there at MCW. Uh, helps me with my Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, but I do all the Twitter so for better, or for worse, whatever you see on there's me. Uh, and I, I try to be more, uh, professional 
and uh, and not so the late night tweets after after too much Tito's doesn't happen much anymore. Let's hope it doesn't. I got I'm a responsible adult. I got a job, man. Uh, you have several <laughs> jobs, and one of your jobs back on September 22nd at Core State Center in Philadelphia was calling this show in your house tent. It drew 15,000 fans. It's a 22,000 seat arena. Uh, but 11,969 of these are going to pay a pretty good gate, $210,290. It is an all time record, not only for attendance, but for the revenue for an in your house show. I, I gotta ask why run such a big arena? I think this was one of the first times you guys did a show at core States, but this is uh, much, much bigger than you would normally do for an in your house show. We thought that we had the uh, main event attraction, uh, that would be satisfactory for those attending in a, in a large venue, uh, that was singing in your house. It, traditionally, I think it was in your house. Remember start out at nine ninety nine or something. So it was always, it was always positioned to be not quite as good as the big five or whatever. So, uh, I think that we thought our attractions were, were, were coming back into, into some sort of semblance of order. And, uh, you know, at least that's what our procession was. So, and, and Sean and, and Mick in the main event, you know, you know, that's going to be a great match. Well, so, I, I do want to ask about that because there is some sort of rumor and innuendo out there that once, oh, no, a, quit it. The, quit uh, it. I think, you know, we and you haven't talked about this a lot, but I have talked about it a lot with Bruce that the plans change pal and SummerSlam 96, of course, the main event was uh, big van Vader taking on Shawn Michaels for the world title and allegedly. According to what we've heard from both Jim Cornette and, and God damn it. Heavy hand for Sean. Yeah. So there you go. The idea was be, Hey, we're going to main event SummerSlam and we'll come back and do a rematch at survivor series. That's where he'll drop it. And then we'll come back in Royal rumble, Sean's hometown. What a great hurrah. And uh, Vader will drop the belt back there. Of course, we know an audible is going to be called. And as a result, Vader's out, Sid is in. We'll talk about that another time. But allegedly the original main event idea for this, I can't believe this is real was Vader and Cornette on one side, Jose Lothario and Shawn Michaels on the other. That was the original main event for the show. Does that sound right to you? I, it, it does not sound right, but I'm not saying it isn't right, which is a really good way to straddle the fence and hang your nuts on one side or the other. Uh, and that, that's painful. So don't do that folks. I just don't know. Uh, I can't believe that we would have thought in our wildest dreams that that would be a show closing main event. It's ridiculous. It, and it's so absurd to think about it now. I, and maybe it happened Conrad, and I just blocked it out of my memory, but that makes absolutely no sense to me if that was uh, under consideration. And apparently according to Bruce and, and to Cornette and Hey, they would know, uh, it apparently was on the drawing board at one time. Let me mention the report by Meltzer says there's still underlying heat between Michaels and Jim Cornette and also Jim Ross. Apparently Michaels feels he's the big drawing uh, card, but the booking is outdated and he resents Cornette who works in the office, getting a big push. Someone had to take the blame for the original main event of Vader and Cornette versus Michaels and Lothario, which was of course changed to Michaels versus mankind. I'm just fascinated that that could have been. A main event that in 1996, Jim Cornette and Jose Lothario, which is on this show on the undercard for 59 seconds. Yeah. Could have been in the main event. It's just 
unbelievable to me. But uh, uh, me too. Uh, me too. But see, here's the deal. Some days, and I think it's still this way uh, today for Vince. Some days you get uh, old school. <clears throat> I'm feeling kind of cocky today. I, I feel a, I'm full of bravado today, even more than normal for the big Irishman. And then there's some days he's more of the, in the creative world, the entertainment side of sports entertainment, if you will. And I think that was one of those thoughts where he had a thought that it would be an entertaining match. And, and, but you know, Sean was not in a position that he needed to be in a comedy match. And obviously Sean understood that and this and voiced his displeasure. I was not aware until you just read that, that I had heat with Sean at that point in time, but maybe I did. Uh, it was not, it did not cross my ears from him. So if it didn't, that didn't happen. I sincerely doubt that somebody's, uh, he may have been pissed at Cornette because of that booking, but he, they all do what roles everybody had there, you know? So anyway, it was, a, yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was a stupid, it's just so, like I said, it's so re- ridiculously absurd today to think about that, that I, I, I'd like to think maybe I just erase it from my memory bank. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something that, uh, I'm, I'm positive. I was that you're not losing sleep over Shawn Michaels, potentially having heat with you back then, but you're not losing much sleep anyway, these days, thanks to purple. And That's if right. you've had a hard eight, 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 and get that free pillow with your new mattress, I'm telling you, you're going to love it. He loves his, I love mine. You're going to love yours as well. 1996 WWF man here in the fall. It's an interesting time. Lots to talk about here. We're going to get to Brent Hart, but first we should mention we're coming off of SummerSlam where we just mentioned that Shawn Michaels was victorious over Vader. So he's still our champ. Of course, he beat Bret Hart for that championship title back at WrestleMania 13. Bret took a little bit of a hiatus. We'll get into that shortly. But someone who debuted right after that WrestleMania was Mankind. And very quickly, he finds himself in a feud with The Undertaker. And that Boiler Room Brawl match from SummerSlam 96 is something else. Most notable because at the end, unbelievably, Paul Bearer turns his back on The Undertaker. So it is a bit of a transition time. And you're looking for your next big star. And you may have accidentally stumbled across him in June. Of course, Steve Austin wins King of the Ring, and he's going to get a promo here on this show. And somewhere along this era, you have a conversation with The Rock. And we've talked about how you signed him before, but it's really fascinating that all this comes together. And at this time, Rock is working down out in Memphis at uh, the USWA and training regularly with Dr. Tom Pritchard. Uh, this is an exciting time in the company because maybe business isn't booming right now, but it's bubbling under the surface and it's getting ready to go huge. Is it not? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't, we, we weren't burning the doors down yeah, we weren't hot. Uh, we, we weren't. And I think that, that was part of Sean Michaels angst. He knew we weren't hot and he's going to get the blame for part of it because he's the champion, whether it's rightly or wrongly held, uh, the champion always has to. And maybe, and I think maybe rightfully so at some point, the champion's got to shoulder the, a, a, a heavy burden, uh, for he's, you're the top dog for some reason, I'm not going to come see you. Right. So, uh, but anyway, the, the, uh, the Sean, Sean just didn't have, we didn't have our covers kind of bare, man. We were scraping, you know, Vader was, a was beat up and his knees were bad and his back was bad. And, you know, we were hoping I was hoping. They would get one more run out of him, uh, and because we knew that his work wrestling on a regular basis days were history. 
So we're bandaged. We had this thing bandaged up, you know, Vince's we've heard that didn't want me to hire uh, Mick. And that was, a, that was a flyer. Took on that deal. Chance I took on that. Uh, Pat Patterson told me, he said, have you ever met uh, Rocky Johnson's kid? And I said, no, I have not. I know he's a football player and uh, Pat knew nothing about football. Hardly, you know, he knew what it was, but, uh, he said, yeah, he's a football. That's okay. So now he's a, he's an inanimate object. He's a football. Pat, he plays football. Okay. Uh, then, he, then, so I, he said, well, you should meet him. So I said, uh, I will, I'm going to, uh, where does he live? He told me, and I went to South Florida and was there was a bad chore and, and, uh, recruited. I got to know him, talked, met his wife, uh, looked him in the face, talked about what he wanted to be, what he wanted to do. And then we're having lunch at this little place, a little Cuban restaurant. And, uh, I felt like that in that scene of when Harry met Sally, where they fake the orgasms. Right. And, and they, uh, this lady says, I'll have what he's having. Uh, that's kind of rock ordered the two chicken breasts, yellow rice and black beans. That's a significant meal in my life because we came to our terms pretty much right there. Uh, that was pretty big for WWE, by the way, as we know. So, uh, he, I said, she said, and you, sir, and I said, I'll have what he's having. It'd be a big shot. Right. And, uh, and so every woman in the house came by our table. Many wanted to know if he wanted something to drink. And many of those asking did not even work there. But rock was wearing a tank top with one little Brahma bull tattoo on his show, on our upper arm. That's it. And, but they wanted close enough to the great one to, you know, seemingly touch him. Then some guys would come by and saw them recognize me and you know, Hey, JR, what are you doing down here? I said, oh, I'm recruiting, man. I got, I got a hot one here. No rocket, that big smile. And here's what told me that little deal market research in person with regular people. The, the, the guys were not threatened by Dwayne. They were, they were comfortable with him. He was one of the boys, right? The women, as you could imagine you know, fell all over themselves, you know, trying to get a, uh, you know, uh, a rub, so to speak. Sure. And, uh, but it was amazing. So, and then we come in the meal and, and, uh, uh, he, we were getting ready to pay the tab and he said, I really like to buy your lunch. You know, it's kind of a celebration here. And I said, that'd, that'd be cool. I was doing, I said, Vince has got this. He said, well, I got a little problem there anyway. I said, I only got seven bucks to my name. So I go and have some funds wired his bank and, uh, make him happy day one and how much he's wanted and needed. And we, and he's a prize recruit. He got a good contract, got a very good contract, low six figures for a rookie that was unheard of. But you know, you know, he, guys like that just don't come along. He's a once in a lifetime guy. At least it wasn't my eyes. Well, the, uh, the talk is all about Bret Hart at the time, who a lot of people felt like, uh, was the franchise of the WWF and had been missing for a bit. Perhaps some people had, uh, started to wonder if Shawn Michaels could really be the guy to carry the ball because he'd at times been, uh, shall we say less than reliable. Meltzer would say, according to several reports, Hart and Vince had a meeting several weeks ago where both agreed to a proposed scenario, building the Hart's return. Although probably not until the end of 96 or early 97, the scenario was believed to be that Hart would appear at a pay-per-view event to make an announcement concerning his retirement and that whatever his announcement would be, 
That event would climax with an angle involving Hart with most likely Steve Austin, although Hart wasn't expected to return for several months after that point. So before we talk about the contract, let's do talk about this extended absence. Bruce has talked about this a little bit, but is it fair to say that Brett was just a little burnout on, on, on being the grind of the world champion for years in a row now? and wanted to explore some other television opportunities that have problems at home. What do you remember about this extended absence? I think more or less, it was the fact that he was just burned out, uh, burned out from what he was doing, not burned out from life in general, or, you know, or working, having a, having a career, but I think it was burned out from, uh, the wrestling grind and the, you know, the, the ridiculousness of the schedule that had very few days off that had no off season. And after a while, it just, it's a numbing agent to, to a lot of guys and it absolutely can affect your, uh, home life. And Brett's got had at that time, uh, had wonderfully, uh, beautiful young kids and you know, who liked their, their dad was a hero. So he wasn't being able to be home with his kids as, as much as he wanted to. I think there's, as we all have had, I know I have guilt because I wasn't there for my kids sometimes. So, uh, that's kind of where. I think he just kind of burned out Conrad. It's just, it really wasn't nothing unusual. You know, it's usually guys leave the company because of the, we're the two C's cash or creative. I think if anything, if we have been involved and Brett was involved in a red hot angle, a real good storyline for the business that he felt like was good for the business and everybody involved that he'd been right there in the front line, getting it. He didn't feel that way. So the creative of the C's kind of bit us in the ass there because you know, losing Bret Hart was, that's a big blow. Sure. So, uh, and we lost and we weren't hot. So we lost one of our, arguably our biggest star and nobody prepared to replace him. So let's talk about, you know, as he's on this absence and, and Vince is going to try to figure out how to get him back in here. Uh, you know, this is a different world. You know, when he went on this break. Nitro existed, but Hall and Nash hadn't showed up. The NWO was not hot here in August and September. The NWO is the hottest thing in wrestling. Was Vince feeling the heat about, oh God, we got to sign. He can't jump there. Uh, Vince would be a great poker player. Uh, I believe because he's hard to read sometimes. And when he wants to, he can no sell with the best of them. maybe the best. So I think that if there was any, uh, you know, uncanny conversation he and I had, had, you know, obviously he expressed his frustration and, you know, we, and, and, and it tested his patience. Cause I, I remember to say many times, you know, we just gotta, we gotta be patient to some of these guys attached to, to the fan base until they bring, they, until they get quote unquote over this is our battle. And, you know, he didn't want to hear that. But it was a fact. And so then some of the guys started getting over. And then when they got over, it helped other guys get over. You know, having Austin over helped The Rock get over. Right. It's, it's, it's a progressional thing, progressive thing. So uh, that was kind of what we talked about. But he had to be feeling some pressure because the, two of his creations that he gave life to on, on a global basis, even though both have been in WCW, et cetera, but really WWF at that time was their lifeblood and what they were known for and famous for, uh, he, he's, there's own creations are taking care of you. So 
uh, we, we had to figure out something and that was, let's get some talent over new faces and new positions and see how they run with the ball. Well, and one of those new talents that we're going to talk about is going to be Steve Austin. But before we do, I do want to talk about the Brett contract, because I don't know when we'll talk about this again. I'm sure we will, but we know that it's famously going to be not, shall we say a traditional contract. It winds up being a 20 year deal. And you've been known to negotiate with a lot of these different talent. Were you involved in this one with Brett that wound up being a 20 year deal on the peripheral? Uh, I can honestly say that, you know, Vince has had at that time, and I'm sure he still does. I don't know why I phrase it that way. Uh, he was, Vince always had great respect for Brett and what he represented as a part of the foundation of, uh, uh, the valued, the values of old school wrestling. And, uh, he always looked at Brett as, you know, kind of the leader of the pack in that regard, the traditional, uh, wrestlers. And they come with a certain amount of values that uh, is hard to replicate in a new world because they went through a territory and, it, and living through territories is a whole different ball game than what it is today. That's a story for another time as well. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know, Conrad. I, th- I think, uh, uh, we talked about it. I was not in favor of 20 years, but I think I can't remember I, I, this structured it like some football contracts, I think, or some major sports contracts where it had, it was kind of front loaded. So as the older you got, the less you made, right? I think that's what it was, but, <clears throat> uh, it's hard for me to recall off for all these years, but, uh, I wasn't concerned about the uh, dollar figures that were being discussed, but I was concerned that 20 years was too long for the same commitment because you're not going to get the same work for somebody uh, in, in their 19th year of their deal. Let's talk a little bit about where the ratings are at this point. We mentioned that the NWO is running roughshod. Well, in the month of September, here's the tale of the tape. There is no show on September 2nd for raw. You guys were preempted. So Nitro runs unopposed and gets a 4.3. The next week you're back, but only to a 2.4 Nitro gets a 3.7. The very next week on the 16th, you're down a little bit to a 2.1 Nitro maintains the 3.7 on the 23rd Raw's down to a two and Nitro's at a three, four on September 30th Raw's a 2.3 and Nitro is a whole point better 3.3. At this point, when the ratings are coming in, are you guys paying any attention or are you sort of shaking it off and saying, well, that doesn't matter. We got to mind our business. We're looking at the bottom line and or it's a rah, rah speech, or is it a little defeated? Like, damn it. What's it going to, what's it going to take? Uh, it was the damn, it was going to take after a while. Uh, but we realized that, uh, what they meaning WCW was uh, providing a product that was more attractive than ours at that point in time. And for whatever reasons they may be, uh, the overall writing, uh, the Hall Nash NWO, uh, uh, sagas, uh, and Hogan turning heel and things that freshened up their roster and, and all that, uh, the anti-hero thing, uh, who knows, but they were beating our ass. So whatever was doing it, was doing it. And, but we thought we had the right pieces in place, but they're not, they can't get over overnight and nobody has any, and now it's even worse as far as having patience. 
I can promise you that somebody's going to debut on AEW on October the 2nd for the first time on that, on that stage. Uh, they'll be so tight. You couldn't drive a nail in their ass with a sledgehammer. If they're not, then you, they don't need to be there. Right. Because it's just this, it's these golden opportunities, man. So, uh, I, I, uh, it's just, that's just how it is. And, 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 uh, you know, the, the lot of, there was a lot of, there was a lot of things going on in that era that were really non in ring related Conrad. They're just almost, almost enough for a soap opera. Well, there is uh, a soap opera behind the scenes with Shawn Michaels at, at all times. It feels like, and he's going to be, um, a hot topic in the newsletter for, I don't know, the next 18 months or so, but he is drawing quite the crowd. Um, believe it or not, on August 24th, the company drew the largest crowd in North America to attend pro wrestling in several years for what was called the Canadian national exhibit WWF express show at Toronto's exhibition stadium. It's 21,211 fans who paid 436,000 Canadian which is about $17 American. Uh, it's the largest paid crowd since WrestleMania in 1992 at the Hoosier drone, which drew 62,000 fans, 37,000 of which were paying. Afford anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. And the main event is Shawn Michaels and Goldust in a ladder match. What do you remember about this show? Because... That seems like it comes out of nowhere. Why was this such a big crowd in Toronto? We hadn't run the market in quite some time and, and nothing on that level, uh, since, uh, 19, where the year WrestleMania six was. So that was, it had a long absence. It was considered certainly a, a major market in North America without question still is. It's a very important market to be successful in. So, uh, that was that deal. It was just, it, we had not run it. And there was an opportunity that was presented to us, uh, to run the Canadian national exhibit. And that was a good old Ed Cohen, the late Ed Cohen, uh, God bless his soul, uh, died of bone cancer, uh, just a year or so ago, uh, one of my cohorts there, uh, but Ed put a lot of great deals together and, uh, it was interesting. I can promise you this. I, I got a sense that if Ed Cohen were alive today, the WWE would not have had any recent issues with MSG because Ed Cohen had a, he was the building managers guy. He was like a player's coach. That was it. He, everybody loved him. He was hard ass, but every, he was really good at what he did. And the president was the trade organization, all that stuff. So a deal came along and Ed put it together. And then we booked a big old card on it and there you go. So, and, and gold was a, was, there were times in that year he was really hot. Uh, and we'll talk about that in the show, but, and then, but Sean was just catching on fire and Sean knew the ladder match was right down his alley. Yep. It was a fresh match. And he also knew that he had all the confidence in the world and the skill set of gold dust, knowing that gold dust could wrestle and work as good as anybody on our roster. And he, and he still can, by the way. Uh, so 
that's a, that was kind of how that went down. Well, I'm sure it was quite the show. I mean, what, a, what a crowd and unfortunately not all of the signings that you're uh, doing in this era are home runs. Of course, gold dust, mankind, uh, Steve Austin, you've been on a bit of a tear in the last year with, with some great talent coming in, but maybe one that was a little premature one that wasn't quite ready. Mark Henry signed around this time and Meltzer would report at the time. It was a 10 year deal at a reported $250,000 a year. And this is at a time when the business is down. That is a lot of money in that era. And I can't help, but think that maybe that contract came with a little bit of heat in the back. When the whispers start, what do you remember about signing Mark? And do you think there was any sort of uh, backlash from the boys about the terms of that contract? Well, there's always jealousy. So that's what we're talking about here is basic jealousy. Sure. You know, insecurity and jealousy. So I don't know how you run your business, Conrad. I know it's successful, but I got a feeling you don't put up a lot of bullshit. I didn't have time for, uh, your insecurities and your, and your jealousy. You know, go to catering and get a table together. I don't give a shit. You know, be an adult, uh, Vince. And I saw Mark Henry dunk a basketball at the NBA all-star game. I believe it was in Phoenix. He weighed about 400. He dunked the basketball at 400 pounds. And he came down, he had this great big smile on his face, exuding charisma and personality. And so I'm thinking, well, I don't know if that big son of a gun has got the aptitude or the interest whatsoever. He might be, he might fit our business real well. Then we find out upon further review, uh, that, uh, he had, he's been, he's trained by Terry Todd and Terry was friendly to the wrestling business. And, uh, Mark was, had was also a lifelong fan growing up in Silsby, Texas. So our Mark was a, was a long-term investment. Uh, 10 years might've been a little long, but it also worked out pretty well. He's in the hall of fame there now. Uh, and he's, uh, making me proud when he's on the radio with, uh, Dave LaGreca there on Sirius FM XM, I should say on busted open. So, uh, good life, good father. That's most important to me. He's a good father and a hall of famer. So, uh, that might not have been, seemed like a good investment at the, in the early goings and maybe not even the first five years to some people. But the pitcher was bigger scoped, bigger, broader pitcher. He became a world champion. He was an excellent heel. Uh, so when he got that last, he's got his last kind of thing going. Uh, Mark was uh, really had found his, his place. So, uh, some guys just slower to develop than others. I remember sitting in the stand, downtown Stanford, Vince and I, Terry Todd and Mark. And, uh, we went down to meet Vince and I drove down there, down the hill from the office and went down to meet uh, those two gentlemen. And, uh, they wanted to know, Terry wanted to know where, what Mark's status was. So he, he's been in OVW in Ohio Valley wrestling in Louisville training. And he wanted to, he wanted to get elevated. He wanted to come up to the big leagues. And I invested <laughs> hand the ball off to me. Tell him JR, tell him what you think. Okay, Vince, I will. He ain't ready. And we don't think you might not be safe for everybody, including yourself, until you get more fundamental skills refined. And that's not a sin. 
It's just going to take a little bit more time for you because you're so damn big and strong. You have to be extra careful that you don't maim somebody. So work on those skill sets and then you're, you're, you're a shoe in boys. He, his head dropped. I felt so sorry for him and Mark's head dropped and he, you know, you can see these expression was just heartbroken. Of course, Vince stayed the good guy, you know, all right, pal, we know it's going to be, okay. So I was, a, I was the turd in the punch bill on that one. So it's whatever, but I think Mark was a good investment. I still do proud of him every day. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, somebody else who's sort of on their way out. Of course, he's on his way in, uh, but the undertaker, not the undertaker, the ultimate warrior, rather he's, uh, filing an unfair termination and trademark infringement lawsuit right at the end of August. Uh, he missed three house shows in late June, the 28th, 29th, and 30th. Yep. And as a result, you guys cut him. And, uh, the suit that he's filed is claiming that you've reneged on your 18 month contract worth more than a million dollars. And, uh, he's legally changed his name to warrior at this point. So he owns his own name and warriors. Basic complaint is that Titan sports and Vince and Linda specifically wrongfully fired him for missing the three shots while his father was dying. And that they use terms like warrior and ultimate warrior and always believe without honoring their contractual commitments to Hellwig. And in doing so, Hellwig claims the McMahons of Titan and Titan sports have infringed on his trademarks oh. and are deceiving and confusing consumers. What do you remember about him suing? And is this another groan in our role at the office? I really need some ginger ale because I have an upset stomach right now. Listen to his grievances for God's sakes. Hey, look, you, I'll say this and then I'll just go ahead and say it. I, I don't like speaking ill of the dead. He was a Jim Helwig warrior, whatever was a giant pain in the ass. Uh, and did he draw money? Absolutely. Was he an attraction? He was, he was an attraction. He was not a wrestler's wrestler. He was an attraction guy. Seen less is better. Seen shorter increments of time is better. But you would pay to see him for those increments if you had the opportunity, as long as he wasn't overexposed. Uh, so, but he was a giant pain in the ass. I just, uh, I, I, I didn't understand his values. I didn't, you know, his, his profanity, his the coarse language in front of women. I mean, really coarse language. Just bad stuff, man. I just didn't, I didn't have a lot of respect for him because of those things. Well, it's, um, so it, it's a, it's a real interesting time in the company because it feels like it's a changing of the guard when guys like the ultimate warrior are moving on and you're trying to bring in this new blood, a lot of it from WCW, the Steve Austin's, the mankind's, uh, but Kurt angle is another Olympian, maybe trying to follow a similar path to, uh, Mark Henry. We know here it's not going to work out in 96. He won the gold medal earlier this year at the Olympics, and he received an offer from Linda McMahon, and that would make the newsletters. And Meltzer would also say that Angle had received offers from at least two Japanese promotions. Do you remember having a conversation about, you know, hey, what if we could get Kurt Angle? I know that Bruce has said that when he met with him, Kurt's uh, sticking point was, I can't lose. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Well, he's just naive. He, and, and look, uh, Kurt had a unique entourage around him. Uh, one or two guys in particular that were always in his ear. Now that that's good and bad. 
if they're loyal and honest and intelligent and they look out for the big picture and they always put the Kurt first, then cool. That's a lot of boxes to check. Right. I'm not, I'm not so sure that happened all the time. So in any event, uh, he was not left to make his own decision to some degree. I thought that our negotiations with him were, uh, uh, fumbled the first go around. And I think that's when he turned us down and went to work in Pittsburgh doing, trying to read the news sorts on the, on a teleprompter. So, uh, that, that was, uh, I didn't think we did a good job in, in that whole scenario. And that's why I think to be honest with you, that sounding, you know, as Monsignor would say, don't break your arm, patting yourself on the back. But I think that's why I had a bigger role in it going forward. Cause I enjoyed that aspect of interacting with the talents and or potential talents. And if, the, if we, I told Vince, if we make everything about seeing Vince, then if, when they, when they can't see Vince because of your schedule, then where are we? Right. So then they step down in their eyes or their perception to talk to anybody else in the company because they've been used to talking to Vince. So, uh, that was, a, that's how that worked. So, uh, that was, a. I just, he, he we knew he was going to be good. He, he reminded me of, uh, one of Jack Briscoe early on, uh, just early on, he carried himself, but you could tell he was, uh, in, he was insecure. He was, he, he didn't, he had a fear of the unknown and he didn't want to be embarrassed. He had just had this life changing, amazing moment that people can only dream of the first American to win the 220 pound gold medal in freestyle in the Olympics ever. And now he's going to get on TV if he put in a funny costume and, and uh, made it act silly. He was concerned about that. So I, I, I kind of got that, but he, but it could have been that that could have been addressed long before, uh, he got to Titan towers and front events that should have been all done early on. I think. Well, somebody else who was done early on is Occam Albright. And, uh, Meltzer would say that's probably spelled wrong, but he's a German bodybuilder who's been in recent Mr. Olympia contests and he signed the deal with the WWF. Although he's not as tall as Jim Helwig or Lex Luger, Albrecht would certainly, uh, certainly when he wrestles would have the greatest physique of anyone to ever step foot in a pro wrestling ring, as well as advances in well nutrition and other things that guys call nutrition put him above the level of former Mr. Olympia types from other generations. If you're not familiar with brackets, we know that this is not going to be a home run, uh, a failed experiment to say the least. But if you go back and you look at this dude's bodybuilding photos, it's no wonder that Vince was enamored with him. Vince was a bodybuilder himself. And we know had, had tried to venture into the bodybuilding business. And this dude was another level. But that's probably not exactly your cup of tea. What do you remember about signing brackets? Reluctant. Vince wanted to sign, so I signed him. Uh, and that's how the system worked, folks. It's that simple. Really that simple. Like I told Paul Heyman before, on many occasions, choose wisely, my son, on the hills upon which you die. And... uh I just, when he said he wanted to somebody to sign, we signed him. Uh, Occam body, his bodybuilder career, his eight by tens. Uh, you know, I think Vince is fascinated with all that stuff, how he worked out, what he ate, uh, all kinds of things of that nature. And 
uh, Occam's wife became very uh, a recognizable figure around the office because she seemed to be, they were living there in Stanford, I think, for, for a good while. And so she was at the office because I think she worked out there. And I know that uh, from what I'm told, the rumor in innuendo, Conrad, that uh, when, when uh, Occam's wife worked out, there was a, usually a sellout down there. So you know, <laughs> yeah. let's talk very briefly about another big signing. I'm, I'm so fascinated with the ins and outs. And one of these that's coming in is Terry Gordy. And of course the team of Furness and LaFon, or that's what you guys are going to call them. Doug Furness and Dan Crawford would soon mm-hmm. be joining the WWF. Of course, this team had been regarded for years as an untapped resource because of all the success they'd had in Japan. Uh, Furness had uh, a little bit of exposure in WCW prior to this, but they weren't really taking advantage of guys, his size. And now they've gone on to become one of the best tag teams in the world over in all Japan. And I think most of our listeners are at least familiar with the name, Terry Gordy, who in the eighties and very early nineties was arguably one of the very best, but maybe after his situation on an airplane, he wasn't quite the same. So when you sign them to bring them in, these feel like JR hires, whereas maybe Brockus was a Vince hire. These three feel like a JR hire feel fair to say. Yeah, it was, uh, with mixed feelings, to be honest with you, you know, uh, I didn't, Michael Hayes was there as he still is doing a great job. Uh, you know, he and buddy and Terry were like brothers for real. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a discussed internally that Terry could use some work. Uh, he had not treated his reputation well there in Japan after that last incident. But, uh, so somewhere along the way, uh, at least I was not aware of it. Not that it would have mattered uh, that Terry really wasn't the same anymore. Maybe a little slower. And, uh, but he still has such amazing natural instincts. He still is a tremendous worker, but. Should he have been in the ring? I'm not so sure about that in hindsight. So, uh, but we didn't, he didn't have a long run with us. It just, just it was not going to work. And, uh, he needed to be where he could be in a more, uh, structured environment than out on the road doing stuff. And then, uh, uh, Furnace and LaFon were, uh, Jim Cornette and I both liked those guys a lot. Uh, I'm not so sure how many others in our little group liked them, but you know, they're, they're, they're a dynamic tag team. And I thought they were the great additions to helping stabilize the tag team scene, maybe not be the team, but maybe so who knows they got over, they get over, but, uh, I thought they would have helped us. And unfortunately they get some injury issues after not too long after that and other, you know, that type of thing. And, and, and didn't make it for old Doug, gosh, you know, my Oklahoma buddies, uh, you know, passes away suddenly. Just a few years ago, which caught me off guard, but, uh, you know, you, all the best laid plans, you look at tape, you get at recommendations, you talk to talents, just worked with them, all the things, make sure you're not bringing a, a some sort of a, you know, douchebag into the locker room. I got to ask I, when you're bringing in Gordy here, is there an attempt to bring in Dr. Death or did you know that the climate wasn't right for him just yet? Uh, it wasn't right for him either. And I don't think doc had the. Doc didn't doc still had his gig there. So he was okay financially. 
And, uh, you know, Doc, Doc did well. But, you know, I always, you know, he and I talked, we were friends, but, you know, I always had the idea that he, I'd, like to, I'd like to be able to preserve Doc and get him in the WWF, WWE now, for one last run, meaning probably about a six month main event run. Shooting an angle with the top baby face, having the angle, putting him over and leaving. That's what I had in mind. And we thought at one time that he also would be a nice one off for Stone Cold. So, uh, but none of that happened, obviously, because there's the quad and the brawl for it all and all that stuff. So, uh, anyway, it's a, you know, the, the brawl for all, brawl for it all is going to be, I think, uh, it's going to be a topic on that, on that device show. Yeah. Dark side of the ring season two, lots of uh, controversy around, you know, what will or won't be one of the topics there. And, uh, I believe brawl for all has been confirmed and the rumor in innuendo is you might see a little bit of JR in that one too. Well, let's talk about Terry Gordy. When yep. you guys do bring him in and I don't know when we'll talk about him. So this feels like just as good of a time as any, you bring him in under a mask and you call him the executioner and he's managed by Paul Bearer. Is this just because you realized, Hey, he doesn't exactly look exactly like he did. And he's probably, uh, he was never really the best promo, but it's probably not advisable to put a live mic in his hand right now, but we think he can still work. Let's just try to accentuate the positives, hide the negatives. What about this? Well, I think this, we, we underestimated his, uh, his mental faculties a little bit, uh, you know, I got, got a lot of feedback from some of the agents and some of the boys and that Terry's not the same and he wasn't laughing and joking. And, you know, he seemed a little bit, a little darker, uh, maybe sometimes like he was confused. It just wasn't, you know, it was a favor done for Michael Hayes and others. There were a lot of guys are pulling for Terry Gordy for God's sakes, including me. Uh, so that was kind of that. I mean, I just. You know, it's one of those deals where I feel I'm glad that we gave him a, some paydays, but past that, I don't know how many, uh, uh, I don't know how many, uh, uh, favors we did him. He, he just, but I didn't know. And that's another problem. I knew his work at one time was as good as there was. Right. Best at best wrestling, big man, 300 pounder I ever saw. Uh, but man, he's just, he just wasn't that same guy. And it's sad. It's it's heartbreaking. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad he got out of there without hurting himself or anybody else. I, I, uh, found, I found it interesting that you were able to, according to Wade Keller, when you got signed Terry Gordy, he still has the ability to keep his All Japan schedule. And I mentioned this because when Scott Hall was on his way out a few months prior to this, allegedly he sat with Vince and said. Hey, what do I need to do to make more money? And you know, what can I do better? And, and Vince says, no, you're doing great. There's nothing you can do better. And then he says, well, if I can't make any money, more money here, can I work some shots in Japan? And allegedly Vince shoots that down. But just a few months later, you let a new, a new guy come in with the understanding he can still work Japan. Had the time, had times changed or yeah. was there a reason for it to be a different circumstance? No, times changed. Uh, and and there, there wasn't the pending acrimony also, you know, of, uh, of Scott leaving. Right. Uh, cause that had been discussed 
at length that you know Scott was talking to Vince and and, and others others in the company, including myself, about it may be time, et cetera, et cetera. Hear it all the time, and sometimes guys are steadfast and, and re- believe it, and some guys are not. They don't. They're just playing the cards. Scott wasn't playing the cards. He was going to leave. And I think we all got the sense that he was legitimately going to leave. So the acrimony atmosphere conducive to acrimony was certainly prevalent. Uh, but I don't think it was a personal, personal thing. I just think the times had changed. And also to be honest with you, uh, Conrad, I, you know, I, I remember talking to Vince about this. I, I don't know if there was ever going to be an issue because I just wasn't confident that Terry was going to be able to make it. Right. I mean, traveling and, and getting a whole, that whole thing going again and what plane where's baggage claim, where's this, where's that, you know, his, his senses were dull from that, uh, from that overdose and, you know, and, and his brain was inactive for a while. So, it, you know, it's just. And if it, now you feel here the story, so, well, they should never hire a guy. We, well, you're probably right. We probably shouldn't have. It was doing a, doing an old timer, a, a veteran, a favor, right? Who needed a break and needed a payday, uh, and that was the only way we knew how we could help him, other than just gift it to him. And so he wouldn't like that either. He wanted to earn his money. So I don't know. It was tough. You're damned if you do, and damned if you don't. Seriously, on this matter. Uh, but if I, I do it all over again, if we had thought that he was a danger to the guys he's working with, then we would not have ever even thought about it. We didn't sense that it was outside the ring. That was our concerns. Uh, if you understand what I'm saying, sure. He, he wasn't going to be as crisp or as fleet of foot or as agile, hostile and mobile as Bam Bam Gordy was, but he still was a big athletic body that on his best, on the, on the best days he could have was very fundamentally sound and he could, he could still take care of business and fulfill the roles of what his role was for. And that was to get other people over but that. We gave Paul Veritas, give him some, you know, give him a little juice on the hopes that he was going to be able to, to, to be Terry Gordy again. And unfortunately we didn't, that didn't happen. Well, unfortunately, what did happen is you guys brought in a fake razor and diesel and you actually teased this on the Friday raw, which was September 13th. You announced that you have it on good authority that diesel and razor Ramon are going to be returning to the company. And, uh, of course we know what that's going to look like. Something else I wanted to mention here, uh, that I really enjoyed at the time. It was around this era where you guys debuted a new show on USA on Saturday mornings called Livewire. It was hosted by Jim Cornette and Sonny and fans would call in and occasionally you would make cameos and eventually it became the first on-screen appearance for Vince Russo and, uh, Paul Heyman called in once as Bruce from Connecticut and <laughs> lot, lot, lots of fun stuff on this show that was sort of tongue in cheek and maybe not something you would normally see on a wrestling program. What do you remember about Livewire? Whose idea was, what was it? Who was for it? Who was against it? What do you remember? I think it was a creation of the, of the actual, uh, TV People, I think, uh, you know, Kevin Dunn's crew, some of his producers and probably it was, was predicated on USA saying, Hey Vince, we get an hour TV for, if you want it on Saturday morning. And then the studio was wired to be able to, to do their send the signal back to, uh, New York, or I guess that's where it was going to USA. Not sure about that, but it was all wired. 
and the, the camera, camera, the cameramen and people were, were there. Curry was there and a lot of your talent lived there. So the, it was an inexpensive, cheap way to do a TV show. We had access to all the footage, uh, that we needed to have. And then, uh, then, and then the calls and things of that nature It was kind of ahead of its time. Uh, I remember sometimes being frustrated at the technical errors that we would in, in, encounter. And that got to be a major pain in the ass, losing calls, dropping calls. And now of course, those systems are, are much more refined and, and we don't have those issues any longer to, to any degree, but it was a, it was, it was, I want, I enjoyed doing it occasionally. You know, uh, I, I worked, I did it with, uh, Russo. Uh, his character was, uh, Vic Venom, right? Vic Venom. Right. Yeah. That was his character on the, on that show. So yeah, it was, it was fine. Uh, it just gave me another something to do. And, but look, you're fighting for your professional career there every day, no matter how good you think you are or how good your public says you are, or how long you've been there, you fight for your spot every day. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing either folks, quite frankly, earn your keep daily, kind of what the world's about. But, uh, I just felt like that gave me another tool in my toolbox to do a little studio show, a little wraparound type thing and do it live. And uh, so. That's kind of why I did it. I don't think there's any, ever any extra money involved, quite frankly, at least for me, there wasn't, but I, 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 had, I had fun doing it. You know, give me something to do on Saturday morning. Let's get to mind games. Like I said, we're right here in Philadelphia. Of course, that's the home of extreme championship wrestling. There's going to be something to talk about that in a moment. The free for all is what you guys did before the pay-per-view started back in the day before everybody had a DVR and you could have your, your channel guide built right into your TV. You would switch it over to a certain channel and it would tell you, Hey, here's what's coming up on every single channel. And in a little corner, it would show you new programming, new content. And in this particular case, that was the WWF. And they're giving you like a free preview of what the show is about to be. And it's a last minute chance to press that buy button and order your pay-per-view. And they open it up with Jerry Lawler and Mark Henry. And, uh, they're recapping sort of how we got to this. And this is pretty interesting because of all the people you could put Mark Henry with, is there somebody better to take care of him than Jerry Lawler? No, God, no, absolutely not. Hey, that could be said today. To be honest with you. The people was, oh, JR's he's, he's taking care of his buddy At going on a loop talents, young talents working with Lawler singles or tags. Is an education for them. If you want to help three talents, you put them in a tag match, Lawler and somebody. So whoever his partner is, is going to get enhanced learning wise, under the learning tree, timing wise, psychology, things you can't learn, uh, by having your, your iPad plugged into your ears on a car trip. You, this is a learning experience. So Lawler's great in that role. And that's exactly why he was booked with Mark is that we knew Jerry could try to hide and, and wrestle away from Mark's, uh, inefficiencies due to a lack of experience. And, uh, I, I thought, you know, for what it was cold as hell match, it was, uh, it worked out. Okay. It was just, it was never going to be a classic. It was not going to be Briscoe and funk. It just wasn't. One of the things that we see here is, um, 
the, uh, the ECWTs. Now this is still part of the, the pre event. So the free for all, just as uh, the TV is set to show a Shawn Michaels video piece, Tommy dreamer gets up on camera and leads the live crowd in an ECW chant, which is very visible on TV, but not acknowledged immediately. Uh, and you know, the, they continue this to the point where you actually mentioned that there is a local wrestling franchise in town with very ardent fans. And you may hear some strange chants, but we're glad that those fans bought a ticket to attend a WWF event. This is uh very well done. How did this, uh, conversation go with Paul to, Hey, we're going to let you guys get a little bit of a rub here and do a little work shoot business. Well, we just felt like, you know, Philadelphia, they have a very passionate following, uh, in, in a lot of areas Philadelphia being their hub referring to ECW. And, uh, you know, we had kind of a vested interest in their success. Uh, you know, Vince and uh, town relations and I'm out of my end of the budget was, was helping Paul, uh, because it was a place that we would have a great recruiting grounds from time came and we did. And I signed a lot of those guys that came to work for us. And, and, and a lot of them just were all of fame type talents, uh, and some will be in, in the future. So that was, that was, is a mutual thing. And, 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 you know, and also Vince Nick Paul's Paul was a very bright guy, brilliant guy to get a guy that's you're aware of that sort of, uh, uh, his, his, his creative creativeness. You don't get too far from him. You know, it, it, the wrestling business has not got an overabundance of uh, really creative people that understand the big picture and Heyman does Vince could feel that. And he, and if you look back at that, then going back from time to time, he's gone back to Heyman for different roles. Then he's off, then he's back, then he's off. And now he's back again, uh, working on the raw. So, uh, McMahon spots talent and he generally keeps him very close to, to arm's length at worst. Well, this is uh, a fun segment. It gives everybody the rub comes off great. Uh, the first match that we would see here, uh, on the, the pre-show Savio Vega beating Marty Jannetty five minutes and 22 seconds. And then after Savio wins, Bradshaw and Zeb would jump him and Bradshaw would choke him with a bull whip. And then Vega later would do an interview, accepting the challenge for a strap match on the pay-per-view. And, uh, then the actual show starts, it's Vega and Bradshaw in a Caribbean strap match, which now, earlier in the year, Vega and Austin tore the house down. But what's interesting is this match really serves more as a backdrop for the ECW situation, where at some point the action spills to the outside, Savio Vega and, uh, Bradshaw are, are working around the, uh, the corner post. And when Vega gets near Sandman, Sandman stands up, spits beer all over him, steps back and then approaches again. Tommy dreamer stands up and then Paul Heyman sort of restrains Sandman. And then you see in the corner, Jerry Briscoe and another WWF official come down to sort of keep things at bay. And allegedly Taz is stomping around the arena in the background, holding up a sign or trying not to get noticed, depending on who you believe. And, uh, Briscoe, before he made his way through the curtain, didn't know that this was the plan. And Bruce Pritchard knew and, and would tell, uh, would tell Savio Vega ahead of time, you know, to be careful and not to let Bradshaw go crazy. And then as Briscoe stomping out, he tells him the, the code word 
is Valentine or something like that. As like Johnny Valentine. And that's when Mexico realizes, oh shit, this was a, I'm over here getting fired up about something. That's not a real situation. Why, why the decision to sort of keep all this close to the vest because it would be ruined otherwise, or what's the thinking there? Well, you want it. Yeah. It would be, you didn't want it leaked. It's a type of storyline that you didn't want to get out and, 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 and play up the, the impact feel the surprise feel. Uh, and also I would suggest part of it was just, uh, a rib. That's, that's, that's how, that's how they work back there. Ryan in that grill position sometimes is some very unique sense, senses of humor, uh, occupy that area. So yeah, I, that's part of the part was half ass rib. Somebody may have forgot to tell everybody. Uh, but you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, Things like that happening are not unusual when you do so much live television with so many cues and music cues and be there, be here and all that stuff, things changing. So it's not unusual. What was your relationship like with Paul Heyman at this time in, in 1996? It was good. It was good. We, we just come off working, uh, in WCW together, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And I enjoyed traveling with him. Uh, you know, I had lost my driver's license. Uh, my Maserati runs 185. Well, I lost my license in Atlanta, and now I can't drive. So I couldn't drive for a few few weeks or a few months. So Paul was booked to be my driver by me. And, and then he was also my broadcast partner. So that was good for me. And I, and, and I like working with Paul and, and he taught me a lot. And I, and I think I've taught him a lot. He, he says, I have, hope I have, uh, but we're fine. You know, Paul's, you know, you always know when you leave Paul a message, he's not gonna call you right back. So, uh, I, I, you have to understand some of his, uh, uh, Wick, his picadillos. He's just Paul man. And, and so, right. We got, we, he's frustrating sometimes, but. You know, I'll call you back in five minutes. Sure. So I've heard that one a few times. Anyhow, uh, uh, good. It's good, Conrad. You know, he, we didn't talk to each other a lot. You know, he's kind of a, you know, he's up in the middle of the night and I'm just, I'm trying to go to bed, you know? So he's a, he's kind of a vampire type dude. He'll be up three or four o'clock in the morning, writing television or doing something crazy. Meltzer Me, said uh, a few weeks ago that, um, Vince McMahon and Paul Heyman talked about the two sides working together and allegedly Vince's idea, they're trying to take aim at their mutual enemy, which is WCW and Philadelphia makes sense because it's their backyard and quote, the two worked out their own fake shoot, kept it pretty much hush hush where Heyman dreamer and Sandman attended the pay-per-view show briefly got involved and it was barely mentioned because I found this fascinating because if it was pushed harder. Hardcore fans would see it as an angle. That really yep. is the the special touch. Like if we acknowledge it too much, then I agree. Th- then smart fans know. But if it feels like it's not supposed to be, and we don't really acknowledge it, it it, it comes off real. Absolutely, I agree with that. Uh, we soft sold it. Like you weren't supposed to see that, so we're not going to bring it up anymore. Right. And uh, it, it was more plausible because you know, I try you try to say this or you do a wrestling angle. If it were real comma fill in the blank. So if that were real, what would you do? You would ignore 
common sense says you would ignore it as much as you could. And, uh, so that was kind of how we played that off. And, and I think a lot of people bought into it, quite frankly, it was, it got over the angle got over because it was different and unique and people started talking about it right away. If, if that was on that, that success level today with social media, as it is, it would have trended for days, that type of thing. All right, let's keep it going here, Jim. And let's talk about the match. You know, we said that the ECW angle is really paramount in this, but in the background, this gets a star and a quarter. I think Savio Vega is probably one of the unsung heroes of like, you know, three or four years here in the company. It feels like whoever he worked with was poised to be a next top guy. You know, he had breakout matches with gold dust and, and gold dust would say he really found his stride working with Vega. Austin has the same testimony. Yeah. He made Bradshaw look pretty good here as well. Bradshaw's not the world champion. We're going to know soon enough, but here he is a big, badass ass kicker. You can tell there's a lot of raw talent there. A lot of upside. Uh, I thought the match was good for what it was, but everybody's still talking about ECW. What'd you think? Well, ECW kind of blew it out of the water, unfortunately, uh, because both guys worked their ass off. Savio was just, uh, you know, you could put him in the lineup on any day. He could bat clean up. He could bat seven. He could bat nine. You know, he could come out of the bullpen. He come out. He could, he could DH. He could play a lot of positions. He could be a baby face. He could be a heel. And uh, he helped a lot of our guys. And that was one of the key things that go overlooked oftentimes is, is I understand the uh, desire of promoters and bookers and writers to be young. I get that. It's no, it's not a mystery, but at the same time, if we had not had veterans like Savio Vega to work with, uh, Steve Austin, for example, then, then Austin would not have progressed as rapidly as he did. It would have not have happened. And there's time and chapter and verse of that stuff over and over again, where it proves out the theory that for you to improve, you have to work with somebody that has better basic skills than do you, not the fact that they can, you can't do a, a you know, a seven twenty or something. The fact that, you know, you are, uh, you're fundamentally not as sound as, as the other dude. So I, I uh, Savio Vegas should get, get more out of boys than he gets. He helped a lot, man. And he was a good policeman. You know, he was loyal to, to Vince and the WWE and, uh, a, a badass if he needed to be legit big time badass. So, uh, I, I enjoyed working with Savio. I always had a smile on his face and didn't have to be told at one time what something they wanted and he got it. Smart guy. Coming up next, Jose Lothario and Jim Cornette. Of course, these guys are crossed because of the whole Vader situation. Jim Cornette being Vader's manager, Jose Lothario being in the corner of, uh, Sean Michaels. And they go 57 seconds, a little bit of mic work from Jim Cornette. Jose is our baby face. Uh, Melzer would say Cornette's knee has been swelling as of late. And it was even worse than you'd think after the match, they show Cornette knocked out, laying on a bed, signing a piece of paper, uh, which apparently is the angle where Cornette was tricked into signing away the contracts of Owen and Davy boy to Clarence Mason. It gets negative one star. Kind of fun yeah. that once upon a time we saw <clears throat> Cornette and Paul Lee on a WCW pay-per-view and now their segments just one apart here in the WWF. What'd you think of the match? And, uh, can you believe that y'all put this on fucking pay-per-view? Mm -mm. No, uh, I don't know why we did it. 
have no idea. I have no earthly idea. Uh, you can look for an answer anywhere you want to look, folks. Have at it. All you detectives, write your premise down and, and tweet me at JRSBBQ or just hit us at, at Grill and JR. That's what you ought to do. I, I don't have an idea. If you got an answer, folks, throw it out there. I'm, I'm serious. There, there are no logical answers to why that match would have had to be on television and pay for you. They paid for it. So it lasted 59 seconds or whatever it was. Uh, I, I, uh, I watched it back like I did all of them and it shook my head. Like, why do we do this? You got two great proud guys in the business and Cornette and Jose and they're, they're booked this way. I saw Jose coming down the ring. I seen that same face so many times coming with his hands, his fist taped, ready to bleed and probably would, uh, you know, and here you got Cornette in this outlandish costume and, you know, it's just, it's a comedy piece, but you got the, one of the best managers ever Conrad and you got, and you got, uh, who is funny. I get it, but he's also a villain. So if you're a fucking villain, don't make me laugh. Right. I don't, that's counter for, it's just counterproductive. It doesn't work. It's illogical. So, and then you got the, the great warrior, Jose Lothario, you know, going to fight, uh, you know, a manager. It just was, I just thought it was insulting and for a lot, for both those guys didn't need to be put through that shit. In my opinion. Next up, we've got an interesting segment. I actually enjoyed this pretty well. Um, we get an interview with Brian Pillman and Brian Pillman is, is sort of trying to do like his own talk show segment of sorts here. And his first guest is supposed to be Bret Hart. And this had been promoted. And of course, Bret Hart's not going to be there. Uh, the good news is Brian Pillman is no longer on crutches. Like we saw him at earlier in the summer. He's walking much better here. And he, instead of bringing out Bret Hart brings out Owen Hart and Owen says, the reason he's not here is because he's scared. And of course, Pillman says he's scared of me. And Owen says, no, he's not scared of you. He's scared of Steve Austin. Bret Hart, uh, doesn't come out. Of course, Steve Austin does. And this is before we get the big glass break music, but he's still the stone cold character. And, uh, he says that if you put the letter S in front of Hitman, you have exactly my thoughts. Yeah, that on, got heat on Bret Hart. And of that, course, got, that got corporate heat. You could hear, uh, immediately Vince say, Oh now we won't have that type of language. Or, <laughs> uh, and, and he says, you know, he's worse than a chicken. He's the slimy stuff that comes out of a chicken's butt. What'd you think of the promo? And, and tell me about the backlash from Vince. Well, the, uh, it probably was one too many, uh, shit references, right? Number one, and that's my thought on that deal. Uh, I cannot believe, and maybe he did, but I got to believe that Steve in that era, 1996 probably would have ran that line by the old man. So it, so I'm thinking that it didn't come off as a surprise, but sometimes, you know, he's been known to give his blessing on a line and then hear it. And then regret giving the permission to use it because once he heard it in that environment, in that, in that context, it didn't work like he thought it might. Right. So, uh, I mean, he didn't go crazy about it or nothing, but we're trying to get a little edgier anyway. And I, that was fitting Austin to a T, but we could have probably done with, you know, the, 
the chicken shit line probably could have been omitted and the, you know, the, the shit man, the hit man, whatever. Uh, so anyway, it was edgy, but, uh, it, it seemed to work. It, 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 it kept getting Steve over. Yeah, it did get over and it was a fun segment, especially if you're a Hollywood blondes fan. If you were a fan of Austin and Pillman back in the day, uh, this is kind of cool. What was their relationship like at this point in the WWF? Probably Brian Pillman may have been the first guy that Steve first wrestler that Steve ever trusted. Uh, and I might be wrong, but I believe that to be really close. If he, if it wasn't accurate, it was Brian was in the top two or three of all time that Steve trusted. He didn't. And the reason I say trusted to use that term that, you know, that DTA is not a work. Don't trust anybody. And he doesn't. I had a lunch with him in LA last Friday. I was out there for the Rose Bowl game and, uh, enjoyed my time at Fox. A lot of football fan, a lot of, uh, a lot of fans at Fox and they're so excited about that. The commercial they're airing there. You watch any football on Sunday. They, 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 they raise the roof man on that, to SmackDown move, uh, in, on their show. And here's what I, here's what I found funny. The only, the announcer voice is Michael Cole. Who's not on SmackDown yet. They featured Austin and rock who I'm not sure is booked on SmackDown yet. They're not going to be on there weekly because they don't have a roster. It's hard to single out people that you're going to, you think you might be able to use and help build up a little better. So it's uh, interesting. It's almost like this potpourri of, uh, benignness. Now it's a beautiful promo. It's a great promo and the exposure. Unbelievable. But boy, it's, uh, I sit in the green, the proverbial green room. They call it the avocado room and enjoyed the buffet. Conrad, you'd loved it. And after lunch, they serve free cocktails. All with all the TVs on big ass televisions, great sound system. And they had four different, three or four different food servings. I feel like I died and gone to heaven, brother. <laughs> heaven might be like that. TVs, football, great food, continually being changed out. Kind of cool. So I don't know how I got off that tangent, but in, in any event, oh, Pillman and, uh, and uh, Austin, I think they, that that was the trust thing was a big deal. And, and the fact that. When Steve came, when Brian came to WWE, uh, he and Austin were still, were still had a, a great friendship. They weren't traveling together. They weren't a tag team like they were, but, uh, they forged a real good relationship while they were tag team partners. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next segment. I'm pretty excited about, uh, this match. I don't know why I enjoyed it, but watching it back for the first time in a long time was actually kind of fun. It's Owen Hart and Davy Boy Smith on one side of the smoking guns on the other. Uh, they have this giant poster come down from the ceiling of Sonny, and uh, it's all marked up, giving her a beard and mustache, which supposedly Owen and Davy Boy Smith did. Uh, Cornette, of course, is not here to manage Owen and Davy. Instead, it's Clarence Mason. Uh, why? Why did we do that? I wonder why we did that. Hey, look, I got nothing against Clarence Mason. Uh, but you know, Cornette with Davy and Owen worked perfectly. Right. And Clarence was a brand new talent that had little to no experience. So what you do is you give Clarence a chance to work with a, a less prominent team and a less, uh, uh, 
high-profile position so he can learn his skill set, learn his job. Or you can put him with your new tag champions. That was illogical, too. So, But I'm sorry I interrupted you there, but I had a nice guy. And he really was a lawyer. And, of course, he was named after Clarence Darrow and Perry Mason as a shoot. Clarence Mason. Clarence, is that a guy's name? The lawyer Clarence Darrow? I don't, I don't, I don't think that's who you're thinking of. Who am I thinking of? Um, well, I mean, at the time there was a, a Supreme court justice or, uh, uh, Clarence Thomas was a controversial character as well. So it's probably Clarence been, Thomas, Clarence Thomas, yeah, yeah. Been, yeah. And Perry Mason, which, you know, whatever. I, I know it's Perry Mason because I can relate to that one. Uh, the match is okay. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it just because, um, I don't know. I thought Owen and Davey were a great tag team. And I thought at times were. the smoking guns had, had better matches than, than maybe they got credit for because of the gimmick. Billy Gunn looked great here. Uh, Meltzer thought it was pretty good. He gave it a two and a quarter match, two and a quarter stars. I really dug it though. In the end, of course, uh, Sunday is going to try to use the distraction, but of course she just winds up distracting her own man. They lose the tag titles. Owen and Davey are your new champs. And then after the match, Sonny gets on the mic. She's got crazy, uh, heat from the crowd and she's telling the guns. They're no good. Cowboy wannabes fires them storms off. It is, uh, I guess a way to turn the smoking guns, get the belts onto Owen and Davey. And most importantly, um, Sonny, who is, uh, your most downloaded superstar on AOL in this era, another opportunity to sort of shine a light on her. What'd you think of this segment? It shows you the power of nipples. <laughs> oh my gosh. An outstanding set of nips on a poster with a hot woman guaranteed to sell. Just saying, so you marketers out there in the hinterlands. Uh, but I would suggest that those, uh, nips be of the, uh, on a female, just saying, that's just me. Not that it matters. I'm just saying, uh, well, Sonny got over. I mean, she right place, right time, had a great look. She knew how to look sexy. She knew how to be sexy and to exude that on a picture. And, uh, so for these little guys to get, you know, stain, stain resistant covers on, and, uh, she was just hot and the, uh, I, I, and I'm with you, Conrad. I thought the smoking guns were very underrated, a large part of their career at WWE. There was, because here's the deal, man. They were two reliable son of a guns. They were iron men. They always give you great effort. They're both athletic. They both stayed in shape. So what you look for in a pro wrestler for your locker room, but at all that stuff comes to an end. Guys start burning out at different times, you know? So, uh, and I think that's kind of where they went with their team. And, and, and the booking group also thought that Billy had the most prominent upside, at least potential of the two. So, uh, it was interesting talents there at that time. And again, we're trying to reshuffle the deck and Billy's, uh, spinoff was a part of that reshuffling. Well, I really enjoyed the match and, um, we should mention this is both Owen and Davies second reign as tag champs. Of course, Owen first won it with Yokozuna, 
Uh, British Bulldogs won it way back in 86. Of course, Davey was teaming with Dynamite Kid then. What'd you think of Owen and Bulldog? A couple of brother-in-laws here as a tag team. I, I dug it. What'd you think? I liked them. I liked them a lot. And then one of the reasons is that even though Owen was mischievous and uh, one of the, the arguably the greatest ribber ever, greatest practical joker ever in the wrestling business, and that's I said arguable, but he he's in any discussion about those topics. Uh, he was not a threat to himself. Sometimes with Davy, that wasn't always the case. So I always thought that not only were they a great team in the ring and gifted great, great continuity. They just, they're just, they're fabulous. Uh, that Owen being with Davey was not a bad thing. And I think that worked out. We, we tried to make that work. And, and of course, guys are not with us any longer, but that was the, that was the idea that they were a great team. There are the, their brothers-in-law and probably on the behind the scenes, not a bad thing for, uh, for Owen and David to travel together. No, super fun tag team to watch as well. And the next match is something that I think a lot of people should go watch, uh, just because it shows you, uh, some of the genius that Jerry Lawler was able to work for whatever reason, Meltzer never really dug Lawler's work in this era, his match with, uh, Jake, the snake at King, the ring Lawler, um, and Jake was buried, just brutalized on the observer. And this is more of the same here with Mark Henry. Mark's going to get a win over Jerry Lawler by submission with a backbreaker over the shoulder, five minutes and 13 seconds. This is Lawler just mainly bumping for Henry Meltzer would say at this point, Henry seems a lot closer to Bill Casimir than Ken Patera after the match, Leaf Cassidy, Marty Jannetty and Hunter Hearst Helmsley. I'll jump Mark Henry. He cleans house on all of them, ending by pressing Helmsley and throwing him over the top rope on both rockers. Henry showed nothing and he gave it a dud. So hmm. n- not the best rating, but I don't know. I just enjoy Lawler's WWF work, especially when he's working with somebody who's green or limited. He does his best to sort of accentuate the positives, hide the negatives. You can really see the skill in him. And I enjoyed the post-match just because, you know, Leaf Cassidy, Marty Jannetty and Hunter Hearst Helmsley feels like which one of these is not like the other, the wrestling version. Uh, this is Mark Henry's debut match in the WWF. What'd you think? I thought it was entertaining. Uh, it was never going to be a great match. I also thought that Mark was not ready. You know, same conversation we'd had. He just, you know, you, you know, a guy's really anxious, itching to get called up, so to speak. And, uh, Mark was no different. If he had been any different then he would never have made it because you got to have that desire to get to the next level. I just feel, feel like it's the company's obligation to sometimes you just got to say, no, not now, but you're closer than you were the last time we discussed this. That's makes, that means you're showing progress. That means you're doing things the right way, right? Keep doing what you're doing and be patient. So, uh, uh, that was kind of where I felt how that was. I just thought Mark was need a little bit more time, no more seasoning. I don't remember if I booked that match. We booked that match around the loops and some places before we got to the pay-per-view more often than not, I would in a situation like that, uh, if at all possible. Uh, but I, I didn't, 
I didn't perceive it to be a dud. I thought Mark was not quite ready, uh, but he's going to be a strong man. He's going to play a strong man gimmick his entire career. Hence the world's strongest man moniker. Uh, so I don't know what Dave was expecting. I really don't. And, uh, but yeah, the bill cast, the, the analogy of, is he bill cat? He looks like bill Casvar and not Ken Patera. Uh, I get that. He's right. He did look like bill Casvar. Okay. So anyway, Mark, Hey, I, they got, we got what we wanted. We got a, we got a positive outcome. We got a good rub. You got Lee Cassidy, also known as Al Snow. You got, uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, now triple H Paul, the Vec, the CEO of WWE. And, uh, it's interesting how all these careers, again, you see guys getting on TV, getting thrown on TV. So you can say, well, what difference does it make? Well, here's a, here's a difference. Even a cameo is these guys got cameos. They got walk-ons walk on part. They, uh, triple H Matt knew the importance of maximizing his minutes because he's a smart son of a gun, right? Hence somebody called him the cerebral assassin and thank you very much. I'll take a t-shirt. Uh, but, but seriously, it's that he, he paid attention. He maximized his minutes. And so him doing what he did in that match. All small as it may be, it's still memorable. And I know he was a part of that, uh, that, that, uh, post-match melee scrum, whatever. Great stuff. Uh, especially if, you know, you like watching stuff in a time capsule next up undertaker and gold dust is called a final curtain match because 10 minutes and 23 seconds Meltzer would say. The heat spot was throwing the gold dust in Undertaker's eyes, so he sold for a few minutes. He made the big comeback, one with the tombstone, star and a half. The final curtain rules were no DQ and that you could only win by pinfall. And uh, at In Your House 8, which was Beware of Dog, Gold Dust beat the Undertaker in a casket match with the help of mankind. So that sort of gives you the backstory. Uh, I didn't think this match was bad, but for whatever reason, I didn't think this was their best outing. What do you think? Well, the, uh, Goldust character by that time, it cooled down quite considerably. And it's another illustration where you have a hot act and you, you don't react to what will the perceived high spot will be. In other words, at their crescendo, what can I identify? Can we as a group identify when we perceive that Goldust will have peaked? And I don't know that everybody was paying enough attention to that. Because at one time, uh, and maybe around the time he peaked, he was hot, he was hotter than hell. He was a big, big star. And uh, Marlena added to the uh, uh, the uh, the presentation immensely. So, uh, but I, sometimes again, when when you creative stops focusing on you, and then at the same time you're not doing a lot more to help yourself. Those two factors, as inadvertent as they may be. That can cause your downfall. And I think that's where I think that's where Dustin was about that time. You know, he'd peaked, he'd made a, he'd, I remember him making a good, well over six figures for WrestleMania working with Piper. Uh, cause I gave him his check and Terry didn't do badly either. So, you know, uh, it's just, he, he was cold. Taker wasn't exactly red hot either, but fundamentally they had a sound match. 
did it have the magic and electricity that comes with being over in a hot angle? Not really. So I, I, I can understand it was somewhat anticlimactic is how I would also describe that. Uh, they've both done better. It's just one of those nights and the chemistry wasn't there and the, and the table wasn't set for that promo code grilling time for our main event. And every week I say, man, if you're going to watch one match this week, make it this one. Well, this is the one ladies and gentlemen, it's Shawn Michaels in there with one of the all-time greats, probably one of the most underrated Mr. Mankind himself, Mick Foley. Uh, this is Mick's really coming out party. He's had great performances up to this point with the undertaker, but this is his first time in a real main event for the world title. And it's funny to think about, maybe it wasn't the original idea, but I'm sure mankind sure is glad it is. And we're right here in the former hotbed of ECW Philadelphia. And what a match the, the crowd is, is really into this. They're going to go 26 minutes and 25 seconds, uh, beforehand though, we should mention Shawn Michaels has what can only be categorized as perhaps the worst promo in the history of Shawn's career. Uh, we're going to play a little audio for that here in, in a minute, but, uh, yeah, I know that there's a lot of fans who complain that, oh, everything's too scripted. Well, this is something that was not scripted, not Sean's best work. what do you think of this promo? I mean, he's saying, oh, you're going to play mind games with me, but what if you don't have a mind? There's not a lot of stuff going on in my head or something like that. It's just unbelievable. Uh, uh, babble, <laughs> mindless babble for the mind games, uh, theme, uh, you know, a Sean, Sean was, could be a handful in, in that era, no doubt. Uh, but it, no, let no one ever mar his skill because it was extraordinary as we know. Uh, but you know, he's, he get fessed off and stay fessed off for a few days. And here's the funny part about that. Funny part, not the right, not the right word. The unique part about that is that a lot of the guys knew exactly his moods. So when Sean was angry. Uh, it was easy to tell that he was angry because it was all over his face. Right. Right. And his mood and his stomp, you know, stomping around and, you know, body English, everything. Well, the, uh, he, he, and then what they would do, they, many his teammates, his peers would stick the angry dog with a sharp stick. I can't believe they're doing it to you, brother. Oh God. Hope you're making a lot of money, man. Cause. They're going to kill your, they're going to kill your push or they, 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 all they, it's all they, so it's like, and all of a sudden he gets, he gets yapping again and gets angry and there he goes. So, and then the guy sat back and laugh at it. So that it just, it was just, it was a really unique locker room that needed some updating changing and different responsibilities. And that largely comes from other guys other than all the incumbents start getting over and taking over the top spots that changes the complexion of a lot of things when there's new people at the head of the line. Well, quite the promo here, not the best one we've ever heard, but still the match is going to be absolutely outstanding. I can't say a nice, uh, enough nice things about this. There's so many interesting spots in here too. Uh, the, the show's going to start with mankind being brought to the ring in a casket with druids. And there's some ECW chants and lots of fun stuff where they're going to the floor and he's driving the, the back of mankind's head into the floor and using an elbow off the top and teasing the super kick, but mankind just runs away and 
Sean dives over a table onto the floor to tackle him. And he's ramming him into the steps and ramming him into the casket. And there's lots of interesting bumps in this that we'd never really seen Sean Michaels participate in, including, uh, the famous table spot where it looks like the table's being set up for mankind to come off the turnbuckles down to the floor, onto the table. But instead Sean quote unquote reverses it into a cross body. They come splashing through. There's another rather innovative spot where they peel up the, uh, the mats around the ring, and then he just covers mankind back up with it and then just stomps on the mat. I'd never seen that before. This really showed a different side of Shawn Michaels, maybe a little, a little less finesse, a little more brawling. I thought it showed him with an edge and really dug it. What'd you think of the match? My biggest memory of the match is the fact that Sean did a great service for himself, uh, to prove that he was not just a stylist, a technical wizard, an aerial artist, that he had grit and toughness, uh, and could, and could maintain that grit and toughness in a high, high environment in a major arena for the major championship against a 300 pound opponent. And for at the same time, uh, Mick had like, this is his first WWE pay-per-view main event. If I recall correctly. And, uh, so for him, it was this whole scenario this week, weekend of this event was so special. He's a, you know, Philadelphia guy, Philadelphia loves Mick Foley. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, so he was, he had roots in Philadelphia as well. So a lot of interesting elements were at play, but both guys, if you'd have told me that these guys will have a match, but it won't be that great. I would have, I would have said, you're absolutely insane. And so I just believe this was one of the better efforts by both guys. They told a great story. It was logical in a lot of places. So, uh, there was a common denominator for it because you're always trying to beat the, you know, the winnings, the whole deal. There's never a cold match in the sense that if you want to win and winning is your object and you're going for false finishes, you can't make that believable. So I, I just thought it was a great match. I enjoyed calling it, you know, that, that, that show was events and, uh, and Kurt Hennig myself. And so that was an interesting dynamic. We used that a couple of three times, not much, but that was always unique in that regard. But I just love that match. I, I, that was one of the fun things about doing the show is to mention here, go back and watch the, uh, the, the audio or the video rather. And I did that and it was just great to watch. Great to watch. There's an interesting spot in here too, where it feels like Sean is doing like his best Sabu spot here. He has a, a folding chair set up in the middle of the ring as mankind is climbing the ropes on the far side. And he's got a mankind has a chair in his hands and the chairs facing him. Sean gets a running start, jumps off the folding chair and then super kicks the chair, uh, into mankind's face, almost like a Van Daminator, but this is an ECW, but it is Philadelphia and really, really cool spot. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a weird spot because the casket opens. Uh, and when the casket opens, there's the undertaker. They're going to call for a DQ. Um, that killed it. <clears throat> it's, it's a weird deal because <clears throat> yeah, not good. It feels like Michaels has the pin. He gets up to start punching Vader for the DQ and Meltzer would freestyle. My guess is Vader was supposed to interfere at the count of two, but was a tad bit slow and they had to improvise. Of course, the undertaker comes out of the casket and now all hell breaks loose. You've got Sid and Vader and Paul bear and, 
Shawn Michaels and the urn and mankind and the undertaker. So Meltzer would say a super match, but the week ending kept it from being match of the year. He gave it four and three quarter stars. You got to wonder if, if the finish had been different here, probably match of 1996. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, right there. I don't know who I don't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Conrad that was, that stood out better and more, uh, they just, Mick and Sean had diverse styles. Uh, they were different body types, just both unique individuals that allowed their individualities to meld together. And when you see something like this come, come to, to into, into these pieces come together, it's largely because the two talents in this case uh, are, are unselfish. Uh, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not going to not do something because they don't want to do it. They're going to do something because it's good for the match. And I'm watching a, a footage from mix on the outside, rocking back and forth, holding on to the urn, getting his power from Paul bear in the urn while Sean is back in the ring, patiently waiting and allowing Mick to get his thing in wherever that is fought over, uh, his urn and play with Paul bear there. So it was just the unselfishness, the patience and the timing of this match was nothing short of, of amazing, uh, quite frankly. Go out of your way to watch it. We should talk about what Mick thought of the match. He wrote in his book, I was excited as hell about working with Michaels who had a reputation for two things, being a pain in the ass and being a brilliant performer. As far as being a pain in the ass, well, I got along fine with him, even though I couldn't blame others who didn't. As far as a, being a brilliant performer, he certainly was. He actually looked like the perfect opponent for me and he was everything. I wasn't small, handsome, great physique, athletic, and a decent dancer. The match itself was even better than I could have ever expected. The pace was tremendous. The timing was perfect. The story was well told. The crowd was hot and the execution was excellent. We put 27 minutes into what undoubtedly was the finest match of my career. There's no doubt in my mind that it was the best match of the year and one of the greatest in history. It was truly a special night and try as I might, I don't think I've ever been quite that good again. This match is also on the short list of the three best things I've ever done in wrestling. So if that's not motivating you to go out of your way to watch this match, you should, uh, we would see them wrestle one more time on raw in 1997. Sean would win by pinfall, but the magic was not what it was in this match. And you've known Mick since his days in WCW. And he says, this is one of the three best things he'd ever done in wrestling. Would you agree? I mean, it's gotta be up there with this hell in a cell. And I don't know what the other is, maybe winning the world title the first time. I don't know. It'd be harder to say he's had a lot of milestones. For Mick, it may be a match with Terry Funk in Japan and those exploding barbed wire, you know, kamikaze type matches. I'm not sure. Who knows? Mick's a very eclectic, unique person in that regard. Uh, but I bet you yeah, I've seen whatever the other two are. I bet I've seen them. And maybe I've even called them. Uh, certainly, uh, the Hell in a Cell is, if that's not on his list of all time uh, favorites or whatever, uh, I'd be shocked. Cause he told me, he said, he gets asked about every day. The same as I do, I we're married Mick and I are married together, joined at the hip for that one night in 1998 in Pittsburgh. And through, this shows you the uniqueness of our business. And when fans care about something, when I, I said all the time, it's no better illustration of what an emotional investment is than hell in a cell, 1998 undertaker and Foley in the civic arena in Pittsburgh. That became, that became a moment that's etched in the minds of a lot of people. 
I've met people, Conrad, that come up to me and tell me everything I said in that, in that, in that, in that brief interlude of crash and burn. And it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's how many years ago? It's 98. So, uh, it's kind of hard to explain to your wife. You forgot their, your anniversary, but you can remember what year the hell in a cell match was in Pittsburgh. So yeah. it's just, it's amazing. That's the love of our fans and there's nothing like them. Tell me what you remember about the, uh, the post-match celebration with Sean here. It's a little weird. He starts dancing around. It's almost his version of Hogan must pose from a decade prior. And instead of, uh, doing the double biceps and you know, doing all these bodybuilding poses, he's doing a bit of a strip tease. He pulls his trunks down a little bit. Uh, and then he has the, uh, the long tights underneath those trunks and he starts to tease pulling those down. Uh, what the fuck is going on here? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, it was, here's, here's what Bruce would probably say to you. And I'll echo the same sentiments. It was Sean being Sean, right? Completely ad-libbed, completely impromptu, spontaneous Sean Michaels. And when those results of his spontaneity were or good, then it was a good thing. But when they weren't, did not have a positive result, they weren't so much fun. So I don't really know what his motivation was in this. That was Sean's boy toy, uh, way of uh, celebrating, uh, this retaining his title, I guess. Let's briefly mention the next line on raw, because there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, Mark Merrill is going to beat Farouk to win the intercontinental title. And then Vince is going to narrate footage of Jeff Jarrett, uh, lip syncing from a year ago. And he says that threats of being exposed as a phony Jarrett walked out of the WWF and they're, they're focusing on slip ups of his lip syncing and they're showing it on replay. And he says next week, the real double J would be that a claim is fame as the true singer of with my baby tonight. And Lawler says that Jarrett was suffering from a sore throat and had no choice, but to <laughs> lip sync that night. And of course, the reason they're doing this, Jeff Jarrett has just popped up on WCW and you guys are going to do something with the road dog, the former roadie, uh, what do you think of this, uh, lip syncing expose here? Maybe not the best creative, huh? No waste of time. Let it go. That run, run, run white says, let it go. Something like uh, that. Let it go. Uh, I'd let it go. Who cares? It didn't, it didn't mean anything. Uh, no, we didn't, we, we, st- we kept selling tickets and doing business after Jared walked. So what difference does it make? Uh, I don't. I don't understand that lashing back. There had to be another way, uh, to get road dog in, introduced. Now, if there wasn't, then, okay, it was worth it because road dog was a, an amazing addition to our roster. One of those, one of those young guys that knew how to work and grew up in the business that had never really been on top on the WWF level. So it's kind of half-ass new in that regard. Uh, and he was a great uh, fine for us in that role. He and Billy in the, in DX was, they were money. So we were lucky to get that, that piece of business done. And, uh, but you know, he's, uh, road dog was, the, was the champion of that deal. He road dog was the star of that, that contention. No argument for me. 
Um, I, I do want to mention that during the Owen Hart British Bulldog match where they're taking on the Body Donnas, ECW's Taz would step over the railing and hold up a sign that says, Sabu fears Taz. And then you, you would say representatives from a small local promotion who wrestle on a bingo <laughs> hall are here. And then you quickly cut to a black screen and then go to a uh, commercial, which is kind of funny. And, uh, then when you come back, you do the famous, you know, I'm bringing in your favorites. I'm, you know, and you're explaining why you're so upset and how much you hate Vince McMahon. We've covered this in our archives, but you bring back razor Ramon. So a pretty eventful episode of Monday night raw, just one night after the show, if you had to go back and, and rate this pay-per-view on a scale of one to 10, what would you give it? Oh, I'm not as high on the show Conrad as you are. I don't think, uh, I probably would give it a, about a six, uh, maybe a tepid six, but somewhere in that neighborhood. I love the main event. So I'm going to rate it higher than that. I'm going to give it an eight just because of the main event, two of the all time greats doing their best. And I'm at the peak of my fandom here. And I remember all of this silly shit with Mark Merrill beating Farouk and exposing Jeff Jarrett and the silliness of Sabu and Taz and Hey, they're not supposed to be here, but they are. And then your famous promo to bring back the bad guy. We're, we're trying a little bit of everything. If you're not keeping up with what I'm trying to throw out here, the WWF is just looking for a hit and they're willing to shake some shit up and try anything in this era. Is that fair to say? It, go ahead. Is that fair to say? Would you agree with that? Yeah, it worked. It worked. It did work. It, it calculated risk by the old man to go get away from the PG, uh, you know, milk and vitamins and say your prayers, uh, era. Uh, and no, I'm not knocking Hulk folks, just what different eras, different times. Uh, and Vince given, given us, given it a shot, the talent adapting to it within the confines of what they could or couldn't do, but they knew they had to do something to add to their TV personas that forced them into changing their, their day to day. It forced them into becoming unique, uh, or more, more unique Add give me another tool in that toolbox. It made talents reinvent themselves with these new sets, new set of rules. So, uh, so that was a good, it's a smart move in that, in that respect. Uh, the razor diesel thing was never a good idea. I didn't have any enjoyment in doing that. The only thing that I can remember, the most vivid thing I remember was I got, I got a monsoon looked at me like I broke his heart, uh, in the context of working, which made me almost tear up. Cause some promo I did and I knocked him, uh, and I never got my promos written. That's got bullet points. Once you say ding, 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 whatever, get these things in. So on the way from Philadelphia, this, this Sarah, the next night was in Hershey. And I rode with Jerry Briscoe, two of us are in a car and a big old Cadillac or something, a heavy car. And it was sleeting and snowing and just horrible weather. Uh, and we were very, one of the very few vehicles on the road. It seemed to me like, and couldn't see, and Briscoe was nervous and I was nervous. So then all of a sudden I remember, you know, I got a, this big promo tomorrow night on television. It wasn't written for me. It just, just said, here's what go over. Here's some things you might want to throw in there. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. So then I started doing a promo and poor Jerry Briscoe had to hear that son of a bitch from outskirts of Philadelphia, all the way to Hershey in a sleet and snowstorm. Uh, how much more tormented could he have been than that night with me? Uh, and so 
uh, I, I always appreciate Jerry for that because he was, he was helping me along with it. He'd say that sounded good or you need to pause right there whatever it was. So that's kind of how I, how I did the, had the promo, but I wasn't sold on it. I wasn't, I didn't sell it with the convictions that maybe I should have. If I had to do it all over again, I probably would have sold it with a little bit more, you know, with some balls, uh, more passion, maybe I'm looking for, but, uh, it was an interesting time, but it was ne- that idea was never going to work ever. And so I, and again, sometimes you get to work and you're on the, the you're on, are you in a sports entertainment day? Are you on the sports side or the entertainment side? To me, the fake razor and diesel was firmly entrenched on the, uh, much, uh, I want to say, uh, fickle entertainment side. So, uh, it was, it was ill-fated Conrad. Did you like it? Did you, do you remember seeing it? No, it wasn't my favorite. I mean, I enjoyed you being a heel, but when, when Rick Bogner comes out, it's one of those, oh, <laughs> but hopefully you didn't have that reaction today on grill and JR. We're looking forward to being with you this Thursday and every Thursday. If you haven't already, please go out of your way to support our sponsors. And uh, don't forget to check us out on YouTube. We want to mention that you can participate in the conversation, uh, by just following us on Twitter. It's at, uh, JR grilling. That's at JR grilling. Uh, this has uh, been a fun show for me revisiting yep. me at the, uh, the height of my fandom and We've got more fun stuff coming your way. Uh, Connor, I got something for you now. Yeah. I'm coming down to Alabama. You know that I'm coming to Dothan. I'm excited oh. about that. Yeah. Oh. It's the, uh, fan, uh, Fanaticon, Alabama Fanaticon, Alabama Fanaticon folks, uh, in good old Dothan. I'm going to head down there and with our man Conrad or with uh, Raphael. And it's an interesting time because it's the weekend, the Saturday and Sunday after our debut on TNT on AEW, uh, on, on October the 2nd. So, uh, the, the weekend is when we're going to be down in, in, in Dothan. And I'm looking forward to that. Seeing everybody, we're going to bring some barbecue sauce and try to peddle some goods. I enjoy that interaction with the folks and, uh, it, we have a lot to talk about, but I think we'll do a Q and a down there too, just for the fan, Fanacon, Fanaticon, uh, folks, but that's, that, this is a, the times draw near brother to good old, uh, Washington, DC. And cause you know, this will be the most overanalyzed overthought, uh, two hours of TV. And as long as we can remember ever, maybe ever, especially on that night. And then there'll be all these comparisons on court, the second quarter hour, they did this the second, and I'll give this quarter hour, a, a three stars. And I'll give this one, you know, two dashes or whatever. It'll be the most overanalyzed damn thing that we've ever encountered, which makes me leery of even remaining on, on social media, uh, because of that silliness. So anyway, one thing about it, we'll talk about it here a lot, uh, and behind the scenes stuff, cause that's where I reside and, uh, we'll have it. We'll have good information to document documentable stuff. So good stuff today, Conrad. I enjoyed, I forgot about the show with McMahon and perfect and myself. Uh, that was always good. Uh, good to see that group and especially see Kurt. Kurt was really good. Uh, Kurt could have really been Kurt would have been Kurt's idol was Heenan. So Kurt could have been another Bobby Heenan, but he, he was like Brian Pillman. He didn't want to be a TV broadcaster. He wanted to wrestle. And that's why Kurt went back to WCW because they were putting him back in the ring. And he did. 
so I wish he'd not had left us because he'd been really good by in a few more years. But in any event, good era. It's funny to keep up with these guys where they are now, how those little run-ins meant something to their career, the Triple H cameo and the and the in the in the thing with Mark Henry. Who would have thought? Yeah, who would have thought? And and who would have thought that Ron Garvin was going to be the world champion? That's what we're talking about next week. Out of nowhere, he beats Ric Flair for the world title on September 25th, 1987. Uh, we're coming up on an anniversary for that next week. So we're going to get in our way back machine, uh, not to 1996, but to 1987. We're talking about 32 years ago. Check it out next week, right here on grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.